Was that wrong? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. How the hell is that Mike Florio's job? So what the f*** do you know? It's a Monday PFTPM special edition of Week 16 Awards. I know Week 16 isn't over yet, but you know what? We're not doing it on Christmas Eve. I'm sorry. Not that MDS and I wouldn't mind doing the work, but we want to give the crew the day off. Yes, we are very selfless. It's not about us getting the day off, although we'll gladly take it. We want to make sure that the folks who work on the show get the day off. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Hello, MDS. How are you? Hello. I'm good, but I do want to point out that much like H&H Bagels, we are a company that forces its employees to work on Festivus. So happy Festivus to you. And uh, I will work on Festivus, even though it is the most important holiday in my faith. I am disappointed that the Festivus poll is not in the shot. <laughs> we will not distract you with any tinsel over the course of the next 45 minutes or so while we do the PFTPM Awards podcast for Week 16. By the way, there is an interview that is coming up with 49ers tight end George Kittle as well. We'll include that. They're coming off of the big win on Saturday night against the L.A. Rams, and they've got the showdown on Sunday against the Seahawks. So that is coming up later in the program. For now, though, let's start with Marshawn Lynch, a guy who isn't playing in the NFL right now, but based upon some reporting out of Seattle, and it's all very early, when you consider Rashad Penny out for the year, Chris Carson out for the year, C.J. Procise out for the year. They're down to Travis Homer, the guy who ran the fake punt 29 yards in the Seahawks-Vikings Monday night game three weeks ago. He's their starting running back. There's some steam. There's some talk that maybe Marshawn Lynch will be back in Seattle. MDS, I, I think it's fun to think about it. It would be awesome if it happened. I put the chances of it actually happening at somewhere south of 7.5%. Yeah, I'm in that range, too, and I hate to say it, but if he does play, I'm skeptical that he'll play well. It's been more than a year now since he has set foot on a football field, uh, at least in any kind of competitive capacity, and it, it's pretty hard for me to believe that he can just walk onto the field uh, Sunday night and contribute better than the average guy you could grab off a practice squad who at least has been, even if he hasn't been with the Seahawks, he's been with some NFL team practicing every day, working out, getting himself ready. I, I, I'm pretty skeptical about this, but it would be so much fun. I mean, I'm rooting for it to happen. There's nothing I'd love to see more than uh, a, another beast quake run on Sunday night football that would be beyond exciting, but I don't think it's going to happen. And here's the more fundamental problem. Daryl Bevel is not the offensive coordinator anymore. They have changed the offensive scheme since Lynch last played for the Seahawks. And remember, he last played for the Seahawks in 2015. He famously retired during the Broncos-Panthers Super Bowl. So I don't think we're going to see him come back. It is fascinating to think about it. It's fun to talk about it, but Travis Homer and Xavier Turner currently on the practice squad of the Seattle Seahawks, the guys most likely to be the one-two punch, and then maybe they find somebody else out there, but it's not like there's a bunch of guys out there who could walk through the door and play running back on short notice for the Seattle Seahawks. All right, time for the awards. Week 16 edition, Player of the Week, MDS, you're up first. Well, my choice is Larry Fitzgerald, who I just thought was uh, phenomenal on Sunday. He was playing so hard. He's fighting for yardage. He's taking hits and getting right back up. This was a guy 
he was just named to the top 100 all-time team on Friday. Here he is on Sunday playing for a, a bad team that's long since out of playoff contention, and yet he is treating it just as seriously as he has ever treated any game in his career. He went over 17,000 yards for his career. Only Jerry Rice has more. And I, I just thought this game was a real testament to Larry Fitzgerald's professionalism. This is a guy who it doesn't matter if the team isn't any good. He's going to be fighting hard. It was a big game for the Seahawks. It may have been a meaningless game for the Cardinals, but it was a big game for the Seahawks, and I thought it was very impressive how the Cardinals took it to them. Even after Kyler Murray got hurt, Cardinals didn't fall apart when they lost their quarterback. So I thought this was one of those games that you look at and you say, this might be a game we think about next year if the Cardinals are in contention to win the NFC West and say, hey, that was the first time we saw what kind of team the Cardinals can be. And Larry Fitzgerald, who knows, he might be retired by next year, but he's already, I think, making an impact on the future of the Cardinals by showing the younger players the way to be a professional. And there are plenty of other guys who merit recognition from that game. I try to pick my player of the week from a different game, but Kenyon Drake had another big season, a real conundrum contractually for the Cardinals after this year because they're already committed eight figures to David Johnson next year, fully guaranteed. Kenyon Drake due to become a free agent. Somebody's going to pay the guy, and the Cardinals may not be able to. Chandler Jones with four sacks yesterday now has 19. He's three and a half away from the all-time single-season record. But Larry Fitzgerald does stand out. All-time team, first ballot Hall of Famer, one of the great players of all time at any position. And it would be great to see that team have a competitive year or two before Fitzgerald calls it quits. And it's felt like for the past three or four years, he's on his last year. He keeps coming back. And maybe now that he feels that there's promise, there's potential, he keeps going. We saw Jerry Rice play into his 40s, and maybe Larry Fitzgerald can ultimately do the same thing. My player of the week, if he plays into his 40s, may end up shattering every record that Jerry Rice ever held because Michael Thomas is on his way in only his fourth season, and he has broken, as of yesterday, the single-season pass reception record. It had been 143. And MDS, I remember when Marvin Harrison set the record 17 years ago, beating Herman Moore's prior record of 123 by a full 20 catches. I thought no one's ever touching this one now. Antonio Brown came the closest with 136. But 143 just felt like a bar no one was ever going to meet. And here's Michael Thomas at 145 with a game left. He's going to end up with, with between 150 and 155 catches. He's got an outside chance at 155 to 160. The guy is just unstoppable. And I, I think that for a receiver, one of the best things that can happen to him is to not be drafted in the first round when he thinks he should be because that put a chip on Michael Thomas's shoulder that is never going to go away. And there's an alternate universe out there where he is Corey Coleman, where he is the first receiver off the board. Does he have the same drive? Does he have the same motivation? Does he have the same chip on his shoulder and ambition to be as great as he is maybe he does because look he got paid this year and it didn't change him but I feel like he's still fueled by the slight that happened back in April of 2016 and we are seeing this guy next level everybody knows he's going to get the ball I talked to him after the game yesterday he said he has preparation he has attention to detail and he just keeps getting open and he keeps getting the ball no matter 
uh, how many times they throw it to him. He's catching 80% of his targets, 82% actually. And, and if they keep targeting the way they have, he'll add another 10 catches this week in their final game of the year against the Panthers, and he'll end up around 155, which is just phenomenal. And I think that one would stand for a very long time. Yeah, and, and he has a shot at a number that I would just consider one of just the great seasons of all time in NFL history at any position, and that is if he hits 160, because now we're at 10 catches a game for a 16-game season. That's just a number that that just sounds impossible. Like, you know, a 10-catch game, doing it once, that's a really good game. To do it every game on average for a full 16-game season would would really just be a magical number. And uh, Michael Thomas has a chance to do it. I would love to see that happen. I don't know that they'll throw to him that much. This This could be a game where if they get an early lead, they start to think about preserving some of their top players and think about the playoffs. So to, to, to think that he would get 15 catches might be asking too much, but man, it, it would be fun to see 160 catches in 16 games and just amazing that it actually is a possibility. Yeah, and uh, I, look, I, I know that that uh, the way things have been going in the NFL, somebody will probably have 175 next year, and maybe it'll be Michael Thomas. But at least for now, it feels like a record that is going to stand every bit as long as the 17 years that Marvin Harrison stood, if not longer than that. All right, we move on uh, to the rookies of the week for Week 16. MDS, who do you have? Well, I'm going with Giants quarterback Daniel Jones, and – you know, if, if only we could ignore that those are two of the worst teams in the league, I think we'd call that one of the best games of the season yesterday. I mean, that was an exciting game, back and forth, two rookie quarterbacks playing well, and then when one of them got hurt, Case Keenum came in, he played well. But Daniel Jones, the numbers he put up were just ridiculous. He, he went 28 of 42, 352 yards, five touchdowns, no interceptions, I know Washington does not have a great defense by any stretch of the imagination, but to do that against anybody in the NFL is really remarkable. I mean, you know, again, Washington is not a great defense. Not everybody's getting 350 yards and five touchdowns against them, though. That that was a really special game that Daniel Jones had. Uh, and, and it's been an up and down year because we've seen some very good games like yesterday, like his first start against the Buccaneers. We've also seen some long stretches where he looked like he was really struggling. So I don't think we know what the Giants have yet with Daniel Jones, but they have to feel good when they see him put together a game like that. That was a unique game that you just don't see very often. And hey, it makes the Giants extremely viable next week when they host the Philadelphia Eagles and could potentially throw a giant wrench into Philly's attempt to clinch the NFC East because if they should lose to the Giants and the Cowboys beat Washington, Dallas somehow at 8-8 eight and eight would become the champions of the NFC East. So I'm not ready to write off the Giants. And for the Eagles... They didn't face Daniel Jones the last time around. It was Eli Manning on that Monday night game a couple of weeks ago. So it's going to be new to them. And if he plays like he did on Sunday against Washington, the Eagles will have their hands full. And speaking of the Eagles, my rookie of the week is running back Miles Sanders. He's had a couple of great games. But yesterday, 156 yards from scrimmage, 79 rushing, 77 receiving, 25 total touches, and a touchdown. He had 172 the week before in that shootout win over Washington. With Jordan Howard out, 
They have needed identity in the running game. They've gotten it from Miles Sanders. He has done incredibly well. We saw him injured, banged up, cramped up, whatever. Boston Scott had a chance to make an impact down the stretch in that Monday night win a couple of weeks ago. Since then, Sanders has been phenomenal. He has helped provide some semblance of a supporting cast around Carson Wentz, who has been playing incredibly well himself. But Sanders stabilizes the offense, allows them to kind of stick to their identity, run the ball, run the ball, pass the ball when they see the opportunity, when Carson Wentz can maybe buy a little time and just kind of work the ball down the field methodically. The Eagles have been playing well with their backs against the wall and uh, an impressive showing from the, the uh, Eagles with that that very thin margin for error. Actually, no margin for error yesterday against the Cowboys. If they had lost, they would have been done. They get it done. Now they have to do it again, but Miles Sanders helping fuel an Eagles offense that pulled off what many thought was an upset, and they were underdogs at home. I thought the Eagles would win just because I didn't think the Cowboys' success from the last week was sustainable. The Eagles played well enough to take it, and take it they did. They held on to it. They should. You know, they're up 10-6 at halftime, and you think they're not going to hold this. They should be up more than that, but they did hold it together. Miles Sanders was a big part of that effort. He's my rookie of the week. Yeah, and you know, Miles Sanders has over 500 yards, both rushing and receiving this year. Only other players who have done that this year, Christian McCaffrey, Elvin Kamara, Leonard Fournette, Austin Eckler, Delvin Cook. So he's in some pretty good company as a versatile running back. He's a young guy, still only 22 years old. And uh, I think the Eagles have to be very pleased with what they've gotten out of Miles Sanders. All right, it is Coach of the Week time for Week 16 of the 2019 season. MDS, who do you give it to? Well, I'm going to go with Bill O'Brien, and it's kind of an interesting thing because when I watch Bill O'Brien, I don't necessarily think the Texans are a well-coached team when I'm looking at them on Sundays or, in this case, Saturdays. I sometimes watch plays, and I think that wasn't the right call. I think... This isn't making the most out of Deshaun Watson. And yet, I think you have to give coaches credit for the things they do that we don't see. We don't see what they do all week. We don't see what they do all offseason. We can point to play calling and timeout usage, fourth downs, those kind of decisions as the ones that we see that we disagree with. But ultimately, I think you have to judge a coach by his results. And this is now four times in five years that Bill O'Brien's result is the Texans won their division. And uh, I tweeted something about that after they won that game on Saturday. And I got some people coming back to me, oh, come on, anyone could win the division with Deshaun Watson. But only two of those four are with Deshaun Watson. He won the division when Brock Osweiler was his quarterback. Uh, he won it when Brian Hoyer was his quarterback. He's staying on top of that division. And that, that's not easy to do four out of five years in the NFL in any division. So... I think Bill O'Brien deserves credit. I don't always think of him as a great coach, but you are what your record says you are, and Bill O'Brien's record says he's done a good job with the Texans. Yeah, and I'd say this year, even though the records wouldn't suggest that the division was more competitive than it's been, not easy to win in that division. And I thought the Jaguars would win the division going in, but we saw how they collapsed. And the Texans, after last year's 12-4, and four, right back in the thick of things. And this week for them, we had the conversation on PFT Live about what you try to do as a team that has the four seed locked up. The three seed requires the Chiefs to lose at home to the Chargers. 
But I think if you're the Texans, you want to go for that victory at a minimum to knock the Titans out of the playoffs because you don't want to worry about the Titans rolling into your building. You don't want a division rival at any point in the playoffs because they're not intimidated by you. They're not bothered by you. They know the drill. They know the city. They know everything. They're going to come in and they're going to play you as hard and tough as anyone you're ever going to face in the postseason when you have that division rival on the docket. Also, the value of three versus four. Tony Dungy makes this point anytime the issue comes up. Back in 2006, the Colts had to win in Week 17 to be the three seed, and they did, and it was huge because they ended up hosting the fourth-seeded Patriots in the AFC Championship game. That spot, one higher up on the playoff tree, is the thing that allows you to potentially get a path to the Super Bowl that otherwise you'd have to go on the road to earn. So you always want the higher seed, even if you get a better opponent in that opening round. Uh, in this case, you're getting a weaker opponent by moving up to three, and you are knocking the Titans out along the way. You're avoiding playing the Bills in the divisional or in the wild card round, and and you're holding out a very thin thread that if there's a rematch with the Patriots, you don't have to go to them. They have to come to you like they did a few weeks ago, and you beat them in the regular season. But it wouldn't be the Patriots, so it would be the Chiefs. But they beat the Chiefs in Kansas City. If you're going to play them again, you may as well play them in Houston. So um, there's value in going for it, and I hope they do go for it this week. And I want the games to be as competitive as they can be. I don't want anybody to rest starters. I want to see the Texans go all in. I want to see the Ravens go all in. And speaking of the Ravens, my coach of the week, a guy like we, we neglect Bill Belichick for coach of the year because he's the best coach in the NFL every year. We neglect John Harbaugh this year because he's the best coach in the NFL every week. And when you look at the commitment he made to transforming his roster, specifically offensively, to moving on from Joe Flacco, embracing Lamar Jackson and everything that goes along with Lamar Jackson being the quarterback, designing the offense to get the most out of his abilities, and they have week in and week out. And I talked to him yesterday about when he sensed this team was going to be special. He said the Steelers game had a lot to do with it when they showed that they were gritty and that they were tough and they could win that game. Um, but, but it was also for him, there was a practice in the week before they played the Seahawks. And he said to somebody, I think we're going to go on a run here. He just could sense it in the way the team was practicing and, you know, his influence, his willingness to do the, 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 the adjustments that were necessary to again, maximize the skills of Lamar Jackson. That's laid the foundation for this winning streak that is now up to 11 they were two and two. They're now thirteen and two, and they may finish the season fourteen and two. It's been amazing to see, and Harbaugh deserves a lot more credit for it. Lamar Jackson's the guy who's getting the credit, and Greg Roman, the offensive coordinator. Harbaugh's the head coach, and I think he deserves a lot of the credit for what this team has done, and also the impact that the organization has had on the NFL and all the kids out there that that love Lamar Jackson, how he's bringing people together. They can't keep the jerseys on the shelves. They're the best story of the year, and Harbaugh is the captain of the ship, and I think that. He deserves, coach, especially if the Steelers don't make the playoffs, real coach of the year voting for John Harbaugh uh, possibly deserves winning it outright and definitely deserves the recognition for getting the first number one seed in the history of the Baltimore Ravens. They've got two Super Bowl wins. They've never been the number one seed. They are now. And the big question is, are they going to rest starters? Or are they going to put guys at risk? Because if you don't play your starters, they're going to be off three weeks between games that count. And that could cause you to get caught flat-footed against a team that wins in the wild card round. That's the next challenge. By the time you see this and hear this, you may already know the answer because Harbaugh told me they're making the decision Monday. But uh, definitely some risk either way and another decision for one of the best coaches in the NFL to have to make to finish out this year the right way. 
Yeah, and you know, we talk a lot about uh, clock management for coaches, and we usually focus on the end of games, but it's also important at the end of halves. And I thought at the end of the first half between the Browns and the Ravens, we saw the difference between a badly coached team and a well-coached team because the Browns had a 6 nothing lead late in the first half. The Ravens did a perfect job of managing the clock. They scored. Then they hold the Browns to a three and out in which the Browns only took like 15 seconds off the clock. And then they're immediately downfield to try to score before halftime. And they did. And in the blink of an eye, it went from 6 nothing Browns to 14-6 Ravens. And I thought John Harbaugh and his staff had it exactly right. The knew exactly how you hurry up on offense, get the ball back on defense. And I thought the Browns did it all wrong. They they should have run the ball instead of passing to, to run some time off the clock when they got the ball back after the Ravens' first touchdown. And I just thought that last two minutes of the first half really epitomized how one coach can outcoach the other coach. And with the Ravens and the Browns, John Harbaugh and Freddie Kitchens thought it was very clear that that was the turning point of the game. And the Ravens looked like a well-coached team. The Browns looked like a poorly coached team. You know, when you're talking about clock management, it occurred to me, it's almost like offensive line play. You only notice it when it's bad, right? When it all works and when everyone is making the decisions they need to make about when to call timeouts, when to spike the ball, when to get out of bounds, when to get down, when to do all that, we just assume that it's a given. Hey, this is what you do. When it's good, it's not noticed. When it's bad, it's very, very noticeable. And there hasn't been much bad about John Harbaugh when it comes to coaching this year. And they are on the brink of another Super Bowl run in large part due to his efforts as a coach. But obviously, the players have gotten it done too, led by uh, MVP Lamar Jackson. If he's not the unanimous MVP, I said this kind of jokingly when they beat the Jets week 15. But MDS, look, there's 50 people who have these votes for the AP postseason awards. And we've talked in the past about how, and I don't want to name names, but some of them shouldn't have the vote. Anybody who does not vote for Lamar Jackson as the MVP should have their vote stripped. What do you think of that? Yeah, and uh, I, I worry that some people use these votes more to draw attention to themselves than to actually award the most deserving player. And, you know, you saw, you sometimes see one that's a 49 to 1 vote, not necessarily with MVP. It can also be sometimes with rookie of the year or with all pro at a particular position. And you always wonder, did that one really have a good reason or was he or she, it's usually a he, just trying to be a contrarian? And I, I think there are a few people on that panel who kind of like to be contrarians and I think this is a vote where it's not your place to be a contrarian. It's your place to vote for the most valuable player in the league this year. That was obviously Lamar Jackson. And, you know, Chris Sims and I were talking about this earlier today on PFT Live. Lamar Jackson or Michael Thomas for Offensive Player of the Year. A lot of times that ends up being the consolation prize for a guy who had a great offensive season but didn't get consideration for MVP. And I can get behind that idea because Thomas set the single-season receiving record. I mean, even though Lamar Jackson had a historic season, there's nothing about it that's going to make its way into the history books other than the five double-triples that he had this year, which we're doing our best to get people to notice that stat. But there wasn't an all-time – well, the quarterback rushing record, but that doesn't feel like one of the big deal records. Single-season receiving record – Big deal. 
especially because it was at 143. And I think you could make the case for Thomas as Offensive Player of the Year, even though Lamar Jackson should be the unanimous MVP. Yeah, and I think in today's NFL, the MVP is almost always going to be a quarterback. So I kind of like the idea of make Offensive Player of the Year the best non-quarterback so that if you're if you're a running back, a wide receiver, even an offensive lineman who's had a great year, there's an award you can shoot for because the reality is the, the MVP is just going to go to a quarterback in today's NFL. You know, that's a good take. And a lot of years we do see it as a split where it gives an opportunity for someone who had a great season to get that recognition. But last year, Patrick Mahomes. But it was a no-brainer. Who was it going to be other than Patrick Mahomes as Offensive Player of the Year? And in many years, it is a no-brainer that the MVP is the Offensive Player of the Year. I like the idea of making Offensive Player of the Year a non-quarterback award. Uh, the only caveat is every once in a while there is an MVP, like Adrian Peterson. It's been seven years, but Adrian Peterson, the last non-quarterback to win it, LaDainian Tomlinson, Sean Alexander, there have been several non-quarterback MVPs. So you do run into the possibility of, uh, of an MVP also winning Offensive Player of the Year. And as I, I joked earlier today, you put the MVP award on your mantle and you stick the Offensive Player of the Year award in the closet somewhere because it's nothing compared to the highest individual honor in the National Football League. All right, time for Call of the Week. This can be any decision, coaching call, officiating call, non-call, player decision, whatever it may be. What's your Call of the Week, MDS? Well, it was the Bills making a call I did not like, which was to punt on fourth and one. and just so I can make clear that this is not 2020 hindsight, I tweeted immediately that the Bills should have gone for it. They punted on fourth and one while they had a 17-13 lead. Patriots marched down the field, kicked a field goal, make it 17-16. Bills go three and out on the next drive. Patriots march down the field, score a touchdown, get the two-point conversion, and that's it. No more scoring in the game. Patriots win 24-17. And I really believe that if you're a team like the Bills and you want to knock off the Patriots, you cannot play scared. You have to play aggressively. It doesn't work to give the ball back to Tom Brady late in the game and hope he doesn't do anything with it. I, I just think that was a big mistake. And I, I actually think Sean McDermott deserves a lot of credit for the way the Bills have been built. I think I think he's built that team the right way, and they're a team that should be uh, challengers in the AFC East, not just this year, but next year and into the future. But I really felt like he kind of choked in a big moment right there when he punted, and he should have just trusted his offense to gain one yard. Yeah, I agree with you, and it's one of those where if he had a chance to do it again, he would obviously – I'd like to think, go ahead and go for it. We hear all the time how coaches are aggressive. Coaches are criticized less than they used to be. It used to be that if you did the conventional thing and it didn't work, nobody said anything. You do the unconventional thing and it doesn't work and you get criticized. There's a greater willingness now by fans and media to understand why you would do it. And I think that if the Bills had gone for it and failed, people would understand why he did it. Saturday was a day that it was clicking for the Patriots. You want to keep the ball in your possession if you can. And I agree with you. In hindsight, Probably something that the uh, Bills should have done differently than they did. All right, my call of the week uh, is the and, – and I it's, it's kind of calls of the week, and it's more like circumstances of the week. We saw something we rarely ever see. The 49ers on the 
ultimately game-winning drive against the Rams, twice facing third and 16, and twice converting third and 16. And really, this is kind of a catch-all for coaching decision, execution by the players, failure of execution by the Rams. On the first third and 16, it reminded me of the old Freddie Mitchell, fourth and 26, the throw right down the middle. Jimmy Garoppolo made a great throw. Kendrick Moore made a great catch. For the second third and 16, it was a blown coverage, but hey, credit to Jimmy Garoppolo. He saw his guy open. We've seen players see guys wide open and not see them and not get the ball like Jared Goff in the Super Bowl against the Patriots when Brandon Cooks was wide open. Credit to Garoppolo for getting the ball out. Sanders makes the catch. Two third and 16s get converted. And apparently the 49ers, this came up during the postgame press conference with Coach Kyle Shanahan, they were like 0 for 50 in converting a third and 16 at all. And one of the reasons is, and Shanahan said, I'm usually just frustrated there and I just want to run the ball and hope I get lucky and it pops through. Because you don't have a play that you feel good about at third and 16. It's just try to get half the yardage back so you have better field position that you're punting from or trying a field goal from. So it's it's not all that frequent that you dial up an effort to get the first down on third and 16, but in that situation where they're trying to win the game, trying to knock out the Rams, trying to enhance their shot at the one seed in the division title in the NFC West, it worked out. It worked out perfectly. And uh, to, the, you know, to the dismay of the Rams, who have had too many – collapses this year defensively but the 49ers made the most of it and they desperately need that that one seed or two seed they need that week off they're limping into the final week of the season it feels like and between them and the Seahawks whoever loses that game on Sunday night is going to have a hard time winning in the wild card round because both of those teams really need that week off and maybe the 49ers understand you know that little b- boost they got from beating the Rams, carried up to Seattle, take on a depleted Seahawks team, get that win, and then get that week off and get ready for the single elimination games. And I think that that, that faith, that ability, just the fact that they converted those, those two plays, it kind of gives you that extra confidence that, you know, this is our year and we can do this. And I think they're going to draw back on that experience when they find themselves in a tough spot in the playoffs, if and when they do find themselves in a tough spot in the postseason, MDS. Yeah, and that bye week is so important. It it makes such a big difference. The difference between getting a week off to get ready and then playing at home versus starting the playoffs on the road and then if you win that, having to play again on the road, it's just a huge, huge difference. And uh, I really think that 49ers Seahawks winner is in great shape in the playoffs I think the 49ers Seahawks loser, I'm going to have a very hard time seeing them uh, advancing in the playoffs. Really, I I would have a hard time even seeing them in the conference championship, let alone going to the Super Bowl. So this is a huge game we've got coming on Sunday. And I think the 49ers have to feel more confident than you would have before this weekend's action because the 49ers proved that when they've got an opponent playing for everything, They can make the plays they need to make late in the game. And the Seahawks did not play well at all. And I I feel differently about that game now than I did before the weekend. I was kind of leaning Seattle's way. Now I'm leading San Francisco's way. Isn't that amazing how one weekend can change your viewpoint? But I'm the same way. Seattle won in San Francisco. 
right? The Seahawks have looked great all year, but they're in a lot of close games, and sometimes you just can't sustain it. It happened against the Rams, happened against the Cardinals, and now it may happen against the 49ers. But the stakes don't get any higher. It's going to feel like a playoff game, and we're going to have it for you on NBC coming up on Sunday night. And when you tune into NBC for Sunday Night Football, one of the guys that you'll see out on the field wearing the gold helmet is George Kittle, one of the best tight ends right now, if not the very best tight ends in the National Football League. George, welcome back. How are you? Um, excellent. Thanks for having me. What's your reaction when you find out yesterday that the 49ers are going to be playing that, that return match against the Seahawks in prime time on NBC with everyone watching? Uh, pretty excited. Uh, missed the last one. So excited to get another shot at these guys. And uh, especially it's in Seattle. I don't think uh, we've won there for a long time. It'll be a good challenge for the team. And we're just really looking forward to it. And you got the playoffs starting after that. How important is it to your team, given that you didn't have a bye since week four, to get that week off before you have to play a single elimination game? Yeah, that was pretty early. <laughs> Um, definitely been playing a lot of football since then. So that would, uh, be very helpful for our team. Just give guys a week off, get the bodies back, um, be very helpful. And, you know, that's our goal and uh, we're gonna do everything we can to win this game. You know, the, the Seahawks are very banged up, especially at running back. There's some chatter that Marshawn Lynch could end up back with the Seahawks. Is that one of the things you look at and say, boy, this is kind of, I, I know you don't play defense, but is this kind of intriguing the idea to see Marshawn Lynch back on the field or are you just fine, <laughs> fine without Marshawn Lynch coming out of retirement? That'd be awesome. I love watching him play. So um, I know, I mean, whatever he, I mean, he brings a lot to the table. So he'd be an unreal challenge, but um, you know, I'm just, I'll, I'll let that play out, but you know, I'm a fan of it. So I, I would love to see that. I know one of the things Rodney Harrison brings up every time of year as the playoffs start, the intensity of the postseason, how the game changes, how the hitting changes, how everything about it changes. And the 49ers collectively don't have a lot of playoff experience. How much are you already leaning on the guys who have been there and done that for, for just pointers and advice on what to expect when the playoffs roll around? Uh, no, a little bit here and there, but, you know, we're still, you know, just focused on the regular season, but this is definitely going to be like a playoff game. Uh, we know that. Um, the last Saturday night was definitely a playoff game in our opinion, and so we're just going to you know, just keep playing our football, our brand of football, which is physical, moving the ball, and you know, trying to you know, get our run game, down, run game down your throats. And so we're just going to keep doing that. And that Saturday night game was a classic. Obviously, the Rams were knocked out with the loss, tied late. That drive with two third and 16s that get converted, I don't think I've ever seen that happen before. When you're lining up for the second, third, and 16, are you thinking, there's no way in hell we're going to do this again? Oh, uh, I know the play call. I was like, hey, well, this is either going to be a complete big shot or I don't know what's going to happen. And I looked, like, I was looking at Jimmy, I, you know, uh, I was in protection, released to the flat. Um, and I look, he, I just see him launch it. I was like, oh, wow. Uh, I looked downfield and Emmanuel was wide open. So that was pretty awesome. And I, it just kind of worked, I guess. How, how has it been for you to go through this process of becoming a star player, a guy that opposing teams are focusing on shutting down with double teams and extra resources? How has that affected you? How has that changed your game? Um, I mean, it really hasn't. I just go out there and I just play football. Um, whether there's one or two guys on me, uh, it doesn't really matter. Uh, I just do whatever I can to get open. You know, Coach Shanahan schemes plays for me to get one-on-ones, and I just have to take advantage of those situations, which uh, I've done a pretty good job of this year. And Coach Shanahan, do, you know, we do some creative stuff back there, which allows me to get open. It's pretty fun. And, uh, you know, I just go out there and I play football. When you pull off a win like the one that we saw on Saturday night and, and, and the way that you did it with those two third and 16s, how much confidence does that give to the team heading into the biggest game of the regular season? Oh, a lot. Um, you know, definitely the way that it get, that game ended. Um, you know, I, 
I think a lot of people thought I was going to OT for sure. But the fact that, you know, Jimmy could stay in the pocket and deliver two third and 16s back to back on two beautiful passes. Um, I think it just says a lot about our team. It says a lot about Jimmy G and how he can deliver and how he leads his team. And you know, we're just going to keep carrying that momentum into this game uh, coming up Sunday night. Obviously, he had the season derailed last year in week three with his knee injury. A lot of questions mm-hmm. about him going into the season. It seems like he's answered most of those. What have you seen from him this year as he's developed and grown and made some big throws in big spots? Just consistency. Um, I mean, even back in OTAs, he, he makes the same passes. He's the same guy every single day. Nothing ever gets to him, whether you know it's an interception, an incomplete pass, um, a bad check. It, it does, nothing really affects him, and he just comes back the next play. And he's dialed in, ready to go. And you know, that's what I love about Jimmy, just the consistency he brings. You know, we have we still have a really young team, too. We have a lot of young guys out there uh, playing and making big plays. And so with his consistency, it just keeps everyone you know, locked and loaded and everyone focused. And then he just keeps delivering the ball whenever we ask him to. You know, George, you mentioned that you had missed the first game against the Seahawks. You had the ankle and the knee injury. And I remember watching that Thursday night game against the Cardinals. And you took that hit to the knee, and I thought, oh, crap, this is not good. And then you're back on the field. How in the hell were you able to keep going for the rest of that game, or at least most of the rest of the game, after you had that knee injury? Um, I really got athletic trainers, got a nice tape job on the knee, uh, stabilized it a little bit, and just you know, let me play. Um, you know, it's football. Stuff happens, and you just got to you know, kind of play through stuff. Kyle Shanahan praised you throughout that period of the time that you were injured as a guy who, like, if anybody can play with these injuries, it's George Kittle. What is it about you that makes you different from other players when it comes to that ability, that willingness, that drive, determination to find a way to fight through injury and get on the field and be as good as you are while injured as you are when you're not injured? Um, It's football. It's 16, 17 weeks. Uh, No one really cares if you're hurt or not. Um, There's still a game to be played every single Sunday. And so I just, in my eyes, it's just expected of you, you know, it's been in my job description. I play football, whether, you know, no matter what's going on. And, you know, if I can get on the field, I'm going to be on the field. I know you got to get to work before we let you go. Panda Express is the sponsor that has made this appearance available. Tell us what you have going on with them. Oh, uh, well, you know, Panda Express, it's a thing that I've, uh, you know, loved for a long time. Um, Honestly, I was really excited when I kind of fell into this relationship, which is something I've been, you know, I've loved it since I was a little kid. And, um, Panda Mondays on Twitter is something that me and some uh, one of my teammates started uh, a couple of years ago, and just kind of you know kept going and going and going. And now uh, I got a sponsorship with them. It's just really fun, you know. We talk about the Honey Sesame Chicken Breast, which is a campaign that we're doing. Um, you know, it's getting towards the end of it, but you know, Panda Express really likes it, and I love it. Uh, you know, it's one of my favorite dishes, and uh, it's just one of those things that uh, it's just personally fun for me because I connect so well with it, and I've loved it since I was a little kid. Um, and, you know, I'm thinking of this because I know you have a Bernie Doodle. I've got a Bernie Doodle. And I, when I went into the relationship, my position was only dog food. That's why they make dog food. You don't need to be eating people food. What's your position on whether or not your dog gets to eat, you know, the food off the table or leftovers or anything other than what goes into the bowl out of that bag, that, that giant heavy bag of, uh, of the stuff that no, that, no, that no dog or human should eat? Uh, you know, depending on what it is, I definitely like sharing with my dog. Um, you know, just saying the honey sesame chicken breast is uh, completely organic. So that's something I would definitely share with my dog. She does like that stuff. Well, how, what is her position on begging? Does she like make noise? Oh, does she just gosh. sit? Si- oh, mine just sits. Si- she's very smart. She just sits there. She just wants you to know I'm here in the event, possibly that there may be a piece that drops on the ground or you want to give it to me. I'm here, but I'm not going to bother you. I'm going to let you eat. How, what does your dog do? She sits there, if I'm sitting at, like, my counter, she'll have her head on my lap as I'm eating, just staring at me. (laughs)
And then she just goes person to person. Whoever she knows has the most food. She just moves. See, Terrible. My dog knows, like when we have family over, she knows from history who to target. She knows who's oh, going to accidentally drop food on the floor repeatedly. Yeah. So uh, it's yeah, great stuff. Straight to my dad. She stays there the whole meal if yeah. he's over. Well, that's great stuff. Well, George, we got to let you run. You got to get to work. Big game coming up on Sunday night. Congratulations on all your success this year and all the best for the postseason. We look forward to seeing you on Sunday night football and beyond. Happy holidays, and uh, we hope to talk to you soon. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. It was a blast. All right, George. Thanks, man. Oh, of course. I didn't know you had a Bernadoodle. That's awesome. Oh, she's great. She's awesome. She's awesome. How old? She is about a year and a half. Oh, mine just turned two. Yeah, she's great. She is great. Oh, there she is. There she is. Oh, All oh, right. Yeah. Well, one sec. Mine just, we just shaved mine. Check this one out. Danny, come here. Oh, here. Can you sit? There you go. Oh, you know, mine got the same thing. The shave shaved off the face. Looked like a different dog. Oh, yeah. yeah. Macy had like the same thing. Hand. Yeah. Look at her tail. Yep. <laughs> mine's got the same tail and we're getting the rest of her body clipped because they clipped all the matted hair off of her ears and off of her off of her she, mine does the same thing with her paw too she had oh, all that stuff sorry. here that long stuff and it was all matted and it was like where's our dog who's this oh yeah so it's good yeah. good yeah, stuff buddy all right hey nice talking to you Have a all nice right man day. take care bye all right let's answer a couple of questions here before we have to wrap before i do that though before i do that i have to remind everyone and this is a message from our friends at nitsa holiday season is here a lot of people are going to be traveling a lot of people are going to be on the roads a lot of people are going to be drinking do not drink and drive under any circumstances either during the holidays or throughout the rest of the year but it's very easy during the holidays when everybody's happy maybe not as on guard not as careful as they usually are willing to take a risk because ah, it's the holidays nothing bad's going to happen i mean that mindset creeps in don't let that happen it can happen anytime any place anywhere and it's on you to make sure that number one you don't get behind the wheel when you've been drinking number two that you have appropriate arrangements in place to get yourself home if you're out at a holiday party if you're out with friends if you're visiting family and the wine is flowing and you're driving home because you don't want to sleep on your brother-in-law's couch and have his, you know, kid stick his finger up your nose the next morning. I mean, whatever the case may be, if you're going to be in a car, you got to make the appropriate plans to have someone drive you or to use one of the ride-sharing apps, call a cab, old school, or if worse comes to worse, walk home. But whatever you do, do not drink and drive this time of year or ever. Also, that applies to smoking a, a leafy substance that is legal in many and seems like more and more states all the time. Be careful with that as well. Driving while high, just as bad as driving while drunk. That's from our friends at NHTSA. Be careful, be smart this holiday season. All right, let's get back. And, and again, the rest of the year as well. Let's see what questions we have here. It's an unusual time of day. We're taping this in the morning, so there may not be a ton of questions, which is good, because uh, sometimes there are more than I really want to try to figure out which ones we should answer. And I'm buying time here as I close in on the tweet where we ask the questions. And I found it. First question comes from Sam J. Hooper. MDS, who will be the next Cowboys coach? And, yes, we're going to hold you to it. Well, I'll throw out there, if I have to name one, Urban Meyer. And I just get the feeling that Jerry Jones, A, wants a big name, and B, already knows that name. I, I don't think Jerry Jones is going to be starting a coaching search from scratch 
uh, on the day he fires Jason Garrett, which will probably be Sunday. Uh, I think Jerry Jones already knows who it is. And my best guess is Urban Meyer, that he wants to try something a little different, a little outside the box, but also a big name, not an assistant, not a retread, but somebody who has won at the college level, see if he can win again, just as Jimmy Johnson and Barry Switzer both did. So that's my best guess of what Jerry Jones wants to do. You know, the challenge when trying to decipher anything that Jerry Jones is going to do is recognizing that he doesn't know what he's going to do. And a lot of times what he says conflicts with what he's going to do or what he will say the next time he talks about the subject. But when he said about 10 days or so ago on one of his various appearances on 105.3 The Fan in Dallas that when you hire a college coach, there's a learning curve that you're buying into. You're not going to be as good as you can be right away. I'm paraphrasing, but that was the gist of it. That's when I thought he's not going to hire a college coach. And either he's explored Urban Meyer, Lincoln Riley, Matt Rule, or anyone else with college-only experience and has decided that they don't want to pay or they're not going to get the guy, the guy's not interested, the guy wants more power, and I think power is a big part of this, authority is a big part of this, people who may want Jerry Jones to take a back seat, not do all the media that he does, that may be a factor. But I think that the, the reality here is Jerry Jones is going to be looking for someone with NFL coaching experience, head coaching ideally, and names to watch. I still think Sean Payton is a guy that the Cowboys are going to kick around behind the scenes the possibility of trying to get. Mike Zimmer is a name to watch. He's the Vikings head coach who was a prior Cowboys defensive coordinator. He's got one year left on his contract in Minnesota. If nothing else, the potential interest by the Cowboys could get him an extension. Gary Kubiak's name came up last night, someone I was talking to, mentioning the Cowboys possibly targeting him. Now health reasons supposed to have ended his head coaching career, but they said the same thing about Urban Meyer. And then finally, Dan Campbell, a guy who's with the Saints, a guy who's a Bill Parcells protege. He's been an interim head coach of the Dolphins before, and he's a guy that could bubble up as a Cowboys potential head coach. But I think it's going to be somebody they know, they're comfortable with, and has NFL head coaching experience, and they can plug him right in and try to undo all the damage that Jason Garrett and company did this year. So I, that, my feeling is it's going to go in that direction, not in the direction of a college coach. All right. Let's, uh, let's answer one or two more before we wrap this up. Uh, how about this? Dean Osborne, 42, do you think, given the way the game is evolving, at some point in the future we will see a 200-catch season? I think that's the distant future, uh, but the game is evolving. There's no question about that. So uh, uh, adding another 40 or 50 onto what Michael Thomas is going to end up with this season that's pretty difficult, but, you know, it's three more catches a game. Some team might try some unusual offense where some receiver is catching a lot of short passes, a lot of screens, a lot of shovel passes, and maybe the time comes when 200 catches is possible. I don't think we'll ever see a downfield threat type of wide receiver catch 200 balls in a year, but... Could it happen? Uh, I, I wouldn't rule it out. NFL offenses are constantly evolving. We're seeing more, I think, of an interest from NFL owners in bringing in coaches who want to evolve offenses. Cliff Kingsbury, Sean McVay, that type of mind. I think it is possible that that could happen, even though I also look at what Michael Thomas is doing this year, and I don't want to just dismiss it as the natural progression 
of records because he is doing something very special. Well, and there's one other factor in this you didn't mention. I'll go ahead and mention it, and it's kind of a technicality. But if there's 18 regular season games, that increases the likelihood of 200 catches. And I think it's going to take something like that, expansion of the regular season, to help get somebody to 200. I mean, really, I thought 143 was unbreakable. The idea that Michael Thomas is at 145 with a game to play, and he could take it to 160, and that would be great. As you said earlier, 10 a game. We never would have envisioned something like that, and it's going to take a lot to break Michael Thomas's record. And maybe he's in the best position to do it next year, whether it's Drew Brees or someone else as the quarterback of the New Orleans Saints. All right, let's wrap it there, um, and uh, we will do this again. Well, I don't know if we're going to have Week 17 awards, but um, if we do, we'll let you know. Because by here's the thing. By next Monday, we're it, everything changes. And MDS, let me leave you with this point, and, and I want to see if you agree with me on this. Once the regular season ends, it feels like the entire atmosphere around the NFL changes. And the playoff teams are locked in. The other 20 teams embark on the offseason. And that single elimination vibe takes over. And everything that happened from week one through week 17, all that it's relevant to is who's in and who's out and who's playing who in the playoffs. And we just the feel, the week in and week out feel that we have during the season just disappears and it's replaced for a month with a completely different mindset and atmosphere. Do you agree with that take? Yes, I do. And uh, I think it just suddenly gets that feeling of what happened before no longer matters. It doesn't matter to the teams that aren't in it, certainly. It also doesn't really matter to the teams that are in it. They're, they're all looking forward, not back. So uh, it, things will feel very different one week from now than they feel right now. All right, MDS, that's uh, it. Thanks again for all your contributions this season. We'll do a PFTPM podcast next week with MDS. We'll just figure out the topics later. Again, Week 17 awards may not work. We'll figure out something that does work, even if it doesn't work. Enjoy the holidays. We'll talk to you soon. Travel safe, and as we mentioned earlier, if you're going to be out and you're going to be having a good time, don't, don't deny yourself having a good time. Just be smart about how you get home. Do not get behind the wheel if you've had anything to drink or smoke. We'll see you next time.